0: This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat orthopedic podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal healthcare. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. All right, y'all. We are at the 2023 annual meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons here in Las Vegas, Nevada. I have the distinct pleasure today of talking with my friend and successor, Dr. Adam Bruggeman, who is going to be taking over as Advocacy Council Chair. Welcome, Adam.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Man, it's so good to see you and be here with everybody here in Las Vegas. We're actually in Academy Hall. So if you hear any ambient or background noise, that's because this is a live recording event. And I am rolling off as AOS Advocacy Council Chair, and I'll become the second president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association. And Dr. Bruggeman is coming in as the new Advocacy Council Chair. Hey, Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what got you into advocacy.
1: I grew up in Nebraska and I went to Creighton University and I graduated with a degree in health administration and policy. It just started and was very interesting to me. Actually ended up turning down medical school.
0: Healthcare policy? Yes, sir. A bachelor's degree in policy?
1: Yes. Wow.
0: Okay. I didn't know that.
1: Ended up turning down medical school so I could get my master's in hospital administration and work for HCA for a brief period of time before going back to medical school. So I've been involved and interested in the way healthcare is administered in this country is locally, statewide, and nationally, and been involved in policy quite a bit. I was the former president of the Texas Orthopedic Association and have been involved in a lot of the work we've done in Austin. And now we're seeing many of those bills show up here in D.C. And you're a spine surgeon. That's correct. Tell us about your practice. I'm in solo practice. I do have some non-operative orthopedic colleagues in San Antonio, but I'm also running my practice on a day-to-day basis in addition to doing this.
0: That's fantastic. I hate to tell you, I think you're going to be a significant upgrade in terms of council chair with your background. That's really interesting how you pivoted from undergraduate studies in healthcare policy, and then your master's degree was in hospital administration.
1: Wow. And then, so
0: you must be a hospital administrator's headache right there because you know one side of the playbook.
1: I think it's good to be able to communicate both sides. I think we've got to be able to speak about the business side of healthcare while at the same time understanding the importance of the clinical aspects and making sure we don't lose our mission in trying to make our margins.
0: And so this is a little bit of a, not really a turbulent time, but a little bit of a time of transition where both John Gill is stepping out of being chair of the PAC and I'm stepping out as being chair of the council and you and Wayne Johnson are coming in both on the council and the PAC respectively. Any thoughts on what's going on and how y'all are mitigating those changes?
1: I think we're standing on the shoulders of Giants, and that's the good news. And the other good news is that neither you nor John Gill are going anywhere, and we'll be relying heavily upon both of you to help us, number one, with transitions, but also to continue the great work that you've been doing and keep you guys involved as much as we can.
0: I'll speak for John in that we both appreciate your words. However, both you and Wayne are no strangers to this game, and you guys will hit the ground running very, very well. We're always available if needed, but I don't think you guys are going to look back. Now, this is also an unusual time in our country as if the last couple of years haven't been unusual anyway, but with the major disruptor of COVID, of course, over the last several years, and now that the public health emergency declarations are set to end on May 11th, There's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of unresolved issues, Adam, that you're going to walk right into, and I'm sure your successor will walk into four years from now when you step out. So let's talk about
1: telehealth flexibilities. Did y'all use telehealth much down in Texas? We did. I think we learned a lot about what we can and can't use it for. I think we probably made some mistakes, but we also made some really great advances in telehealth. If I just saw the patient a week ago and they didn't have appropriate advanced imaging to make the diagnosis, do I really need them to come back in to go back over that imaging or could that be a nice telehealth visit? The other thing is, Texas, like many states, has large rural areas and being able to reach out to some of those rural areas and reduce the number of times they have to drive several hours each direction to see a specialist was important. So I think telehealth flexibilities during public health emergency were very important to our patients and providing the best possible care.
0: Any thoughts on what Congress should do in terms of changing legislation or even the regulatory agencies as far as
1: how we can use telehealth and orthopedics? I think there's some big challenges ahead of us. One is we don't want to only create a scenario that certain people of certain incomes or certain classes can utilize. And technology, broadband, two-way audio video communication may not be available to everybody of every income class of every part of the country. They may not have access to that. So we're going to have to really think through how do we make sure that every patient has equal access to telehealth without only making it for those who can afford to obtain those technologies or have those technologies on a regular basis.
0: Very well said. You sound like a great counsel and advocacy chair. Another thing that came up out of the public health emergency was the expansion of physician owned hospitals. As you know, we were allowed to use physician owned hospitals and expand these under the public health emergency in order to meet the incredible demand of the patients at that time. Any thoughts on what Congress or the regulatory agency should do in terms of maintaining the expansion of the physician-owned hospitals?
1: I think it was 10 years ago when we saw the last congressional budget office bill that showed us at about a $500 million savings to the healthcare system by going to physician-owned hospitals. It'll be interesting to see how that's scored going forward. Obviously, that's an incredibly important part of this. But clearly there's a need for continued access and physician-owned hospitals actually navigated the COVID process well by somewhat allowing certain hospitals to, specialty hospitals, to continue performing urgent surgeries that maybe were needed and keeping the resources for COVID patients at those hospitals that were allowed to have COVID and somewhat having a two-tiered system that allowed for patients to continue getting care that needed it urgently, but also allowed for COVID patients to get care safely.
0: You brought up an excellent point right there that I think we have somehow managed to skirt around, or the, all the time I've been doing this, is we really didn't talk about CBO scoring. So as you stated, the Congressional Budget Office scores these legislative activities and legislative actions so that the Congress actually knows the impact of the country. Can you tell us a little bit more about scoring and how that occurs?
1: Yeah, any bill will get a score from the CBO and will say, typically over a 10-year period, this is what we think this will cost or save our government. And... Especially with the most recent Congress, the goal is budget neutrality, if not reduced cuts and reduce spending. And so anything that increases spending in the next two years is going to have a very difficult time coming across unless it has a clear and obvious public health support. I think the CBO is becoming more and more critical and important. Many of us question sometimes how they get to their numbers. It's always unclear. It's not as transparent as all of us would like it to be, but it is a number that Congress will utilize to make decisions about whether to pass a bill. Even if it's a great idea, it can get shut down based on a really high CBO score. Prior authorization being a great example of that.
0: Great point. So a lot of good ideas have been derailed because of Congressional Budget Office scoring that wasn't necessarily the way that we had hoped it had gone. Correct. And then lastly, you were actually our guest on episode 24 when we talked about surprise medical bills. You are an expert on this. Why don't you tell us more about the No Surprises Act and how that's being implemented?
1: We're at, I think, four lawsuits now from the Texas Medical Association, which appears to be the kind of they're the banner waiver right now for all of healthcare.
0: So let me step into this. So the Texas Medical Association had the audacity to sue... Health and Human Services, Treasury, and Labor was the third one, right? Correct. So that's just a little (laughs) audacious. Good for (laughs) y'all. Proud of y'all. So y'all sued the federal government.
1: Yeah, and they're suing it really based on implementation. Not on the letter of the law. The letter of the law is what the letter of the law is. But again, a refresher, after a law is passed, it has to go through some regulatory body. And that's assigned based on who would be responsible for administering that. And that regulatory body then has to put... What's written at a 30,000-foot view has to bring that down to a five-foot view, right? We've got to see what that looks like at ground level. And so they put in all these processes and ideas and how to make that bill stand out. The concern of the Texas Medical Association men providers is that they are creating laws by the way that they're implementing it at the ground level. They are going against the intent of those who authored the bill. And so each of these bills has unique components of the regulatory decisions that were made that they disagree with and state are outside the intent. So far to date, the Texas Medical Association has been successful in all of their challenges that have been decided by judges. We continue to see changes that are ongoing, the real downside being that patient care is being disrupted as a result of all of this. The payments have been stopped, the arbitration has been shut down, it has just restarted, but all of this stopping and starting is delaying the amount of time it takes for our physicians who happen to find themselves out of network in trauma incidents or otherwise from getting paid the amount that they need to get paid, yet their expenses have not stopped. They still have to pay their staff, their rent, and continue to do the things that they do to take care of patients.
0: Very well said, sir. I admire the boldness of TMA and your colleagues down in Texas. And as you know, as the Academy and the association, we jumped on to those to support it because y'all led the way on that. Thank you for that. So those are unresolved issues. And there's a couple of others that you and I have talked a little bit off air that I unfortunately wasn't able to get wrapped up before you came on. However, we do have ongoing issues once again that'll be here permanently that we'll always deal with. The first, of course, that we'd like to talk about is Medicare payment reform remember the SGR fix was supposed to get rid of all that. That didn't work. We're back to that again. And it's where Congress is having to constantly put in the updates for Medicare payment reform. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I certainly hope we can come to a solution where we're not constantly going back to Congress every year. As you said, the SGR slog that it was at the end of the year, every year, let's get a budget pass, last minute, hand wringing, trying to make sure we got it. Usually we were very successful, but it's a very difficult process. I think we want to find a way that we don't have to constantly be advocating to ensure that there's doctors who want to see Medicare patients and make sure that there's sufficient payment to make that make sense. We'd rather be up there fighting for other issues for our patients that make tons of sense and improve the care that we're providing.
0: And it's hard. We always paint everything in the light of patient care and a lot of very good patient care centric issues that we are having trouble getting to because of the bandwidth of keeping our offices
1: open. That's exactly right. And ultimately that does affect patient care because at some point surgeons are going to stop taking Medicare patients. And that means that network reduces and access reduces and quality goes down. While it seems like a specific issue for physicians who are just worried about their bottom line, what it really boils down to is an access issue and a quality of care issue.
0: That kind of dovetails right into burden relief, all the regulatory burdens that are
1: placed on physicians every day. Any thoughts on burden relief? In Texas, we were really big about this Gold Card Act and prior authorization, and that I have to hand it to a neurosurgeon, one of our congressmen, our state representatives, Greg Bonin. He led the way and continues to lead the way in prior authorization and reducing burden. We're seeing those come out into the federal legislation now, too. I think Congressman Burgess has taken up a similar bill, but anything we can do to reduce the amount of time that physicians are spending getting the care that they have already recommended and that the patient recommends, the studies show that 97% of the time we go through prior authorization, it's already approved. Why do we want to keep going through this process that's approved every time? Let's get our patients the care they need when they need it appropriately and And I think the Gold Card Act or similar types of legislation will help reduce that burden in physician offices.
0: And we did an episode on Gold Card. Can you give us a quick synopsis of what y'all did in Texas and how we can do that on a federal level?
1: Yeah, basically it is. If you are approved at least 90% of the time for your procedures, then you can get what's called a gold card status. And that determination is made over a six month window. They pull a percentage of your cases. They look and see how many of them did you get approved. If the answer was more than 90%, then going forward for the next six months, you will not have to go through a prior authorization process. During that six-month window where you're not going through prior authorization, they will do another look back at the end of that and say, during that six-month window when you didn't have to call us, did you follow appropriate and accepted guidelines for performing procedures or doing treatments? If the answer was yes, then you get it for another six months and it rolls on, so on and so forth. But the one important piece and why we keep talking about a state law versus a federal law is that the state is only allowed to oversee certain insurance carriers. We need a federal solution to solve for ERISA plans or those plans that are typically provided by your employers and are not subject to state regulations.
0: Well said. Let me dip into your master's of hospital administration for a second on this hospital consolidation in the academic environment. We know that when you have consolidation on a market, you reduce competition and reducing competition increases costs and decreases quality. Hope I didn't steal all your air right there, but (laughs) any thoughts on hospital consolidation and how that will affect patient care?
1: Yeah, I think you're spot on with what you said. It reduces access because there's less hospital systems that you're available to get to. And then insurance companies have a harder time negotiating their contracts with those hospitals because they only have one or two that they can pick from and they are somewhat beholden to paying that amount, whatever that hospital requires. Or they go out of network with that insurance carrier, creating significant access issues that all drives up the cost of care. And so I think actually a great solution to this is, again, expanding the physician-owned hospitals. Those are largely not consolidated. And that allows us to create more competition in a market, typically at a lower price than the big healthcare chains. And so there's some significant benefits to having these physician-owned hospitals get expanded. And that, I think, helps resolve some of the hospital consolidation concerns.
0: Especially with our new president, Kevin Bozick, who's got an extensive viewpoint on quality and patient-reported outcomes. This is an ideal time for this. Absolutely. Then the other big thing, of course, we have is when you were in provider school. Oh, wait, you went to medical school. (laughs) You
1: didn't go to provider school. You're not a provider. You're a doctor. That's right. You're a physician. Even that word doctor gets confusing, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. So now that we have clearly called out the fact that we're not providers, we're orthopedic surgeons, everybody else wants a piece of our pie, which gets into the scope of practice issues. And this is a perennial issue. I know you know this well. And as council chair, you're going to be stamping down scope issues like you did in Texas. I'm sure in Texas, y'all saw this all the time. We see it all the time now on the federal level, and you'll be leading those fights. Any thoughts
1: on scope issues? At the state level, we have largely seen an orthopedics fight with two groups. One is physical therapists who want to treat patients without a doctor seeing them. And we have, I think, come up with a solution we feel comfortable with that allows some availability without giving them too much leeway and requiring a doctor to see them within a certain period of time. With the other people, we see podiatrists largely coming in and trying to do more treatment and more procedures. There was, a, unfortunately, a very offensive publication that was put out by the Texas Podiatry Group calling out surgeons for doing unnecessary procedures and that podiatrists needed to balance us out. And we are certainly fighting that on a regular basis at the national level. Thankfully, we are fighting similar issues, so we have a good playbook and we know how to speak to those issues. But our colleagues, our other colleagues in medicine, it's important that we band together, are fighting bigger scope issues. Our anesthesiology groups, our ophthalmology groups are fighting significant scope issues. And so we try and stand together when we can stand together because we certainly need their help as we fire our own internal scope issues, too.
0: Very well said. And we work through MADPAC or the Medical and Dental Political Action Committee that we're an integral part of and we do a lot of work with and you'll be working along with them. And it sounds just knowing you and from all the stuff that y'all have done in Texas, you'll bring a huge amount of experience and implementation that you were able to develop there into the Council on Advocacy. So we appreciate that. We also have some rising issues which are coming up as with physician mental health. As we know, this is becoming more and more of an issue and I know that like Liz Maskin through the membership council
1: is also working on mental health. Any thoughts on what we can do with that? We didn't talk about it too much, but I actually got board certified in addiction medicine because of the opioid crisis and what we see in my practice. And I run an opioid treatment center, so I'm heavily involved in mental health. Not necessarily what we're talking about here, which is how it impacts physicians. But mental health is near and dear to my heart and important. I think the biggest thing is some of the things we talked about previously. As we begin to reduce the burden on practices, that helps our physicians spend more time doing the things that they want to do. It's important that doctors have a life outside of their practice. And I don't know that's always been the case, but I think we're learning that it really is important that they're able to pursue hobbies and passions outside of the practice of medicine. And Things that we can do to help them enjoy the practice of medicine more also means helping them have more time to spend with their families or do things on the evenings and weekends that don't involve medicine. And so I think any of these types of topics we've been talking about earlier from telehealth flexibilities to prior authorization reform can help educating our physicians on or helping our physicians become better about that. And then educating our physicians on how to have a better work-life balance will help them become better physicians for their patients.
0: We also recall some of the tremendous tragedies that occurred within orthopedics from workplace violence. I was going through customs the other day, and I saw the warnings that if you salt or say anything threatening to any of these federal workers in transportation, that these are dealt with very aggressively by the federal government. And the SAVE Act is attempting to get the same Protections in for hospital based workers. Any thoughts on safety from workplace violence?
1: Yeah, I think the SAVE Act is a great start. I'd love to see it expanded to include private practicing physicians that aren't hospital employed so that all of our staff and all of our physicians within our membership are covered. But it's a great spot to start from. And it's important that as our society becomes more aggressive in their interactions with various public officials as well as private service oriented companies. We really need to find ways to protect our employees, but also protect our membership. As we get back to this physician mental health concept, if you have patients who are aggressively yelling at you and your staff, it makes it feel like you really don't want to do the job anymore. And so these are just important things to provide a layer of protection from the unthinkable, such as what's happened in Tulsa and elsewhere, but also just improving our ability to have a safe and enjoyable workplace.
0: especially protect our very vulnerable staff who are working for us and expect to have a safe workplace to come into. That's fantastic. It's a shame that a lot of the research that has occurred in orthopedics, especially in trauma surgery that I do, was necessitated through the injuries of our young soldiers, airmen and sailors who were injured in acts of combat as an ex-infantry soldier. I can feel for that, but Fortunately, the federal government has allowed us to have research funding to do extensive studying on the war effort, but it's not just there. It's throughout the rest of all the different things that we do in federal funding for orthopedic. Any thoughts on what we should do with these things moving forward?
1: I think, obviously, we don't advance as a profession without research, and we need adequate funding and adequate support, and I think also trying to encourage our non-academic colleagues to contribute to it. I think that's been something we need to look to internally as an academy and encourage and support through funding some of our smaller practices and our medium-sized practices. It would be great to be getting research efforts from across all spectrums of care, rural and urban care, and ensure that our research reflects that so that we can continue to advance our profession.
0: All right, y'all. This has once again been my distinct pleasure and honor to interview and discuss advocacy and the state of orthopedics with Dr. Adam Bruggeman, who is coming in as the next advocacy council chair. Welcome, Adam. I know you're going to do a fantastic job. I have really enjoyed my time as council and advocacy chair, and I really appreciate all the support, that I've got from Academy leadership and from all of y'all out there, please continue to be actively engaged in advocacy, both on a state and federal level. Please continue to give to the pack. Please continue to listen to the Advocacy Bone Beat podcast and all of the things that are coming out through our Office of Government Relations and our advocacy channels. Dr. Bruggeman will have the first episode that he does in April. So make sure you tune in to his episodes starting in April, moving forward for that. As I stated previously, I'm about to become the second president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association, so I'll still be involved, Adam, through the board of specialty societies, but it's all yours,
1: buddy. Good luck. Thank you. It's been an honor to work with you and looking forward to continue working with you going forward. We'll certainly have you on as a guest on these podcasts. I'm looking forward to discussing several really key and critical topics that we're going to be addressing over the next two years through this Congress. Certainly we're going to see some big changes with the No Surprises Act, as well as prior authorization. We'll be getting in and digging in with experts in those areas, experts in the fields, teaching you how you can navigate this as a practicing physician, understanding how to improve your practice and understanding what's going on in Congress so you can communicate effectively with your local members, ensuring that we get accomplished what we are trying to do.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash thebonebeat-advocacy.